Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. We Americans, ever deeper into the fight for Ukraine, are gambling with Armageddon in the title of Martin Sherwin's history of the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1963. But we're in a different world of weapons and warriors, and we're a different people looking on, perhaps less aware of nuclear weapons than we were in the 1960s, when there were fewer of them. We may be generally less worried than when everybody you knew had seen Dr. Strangelove, the nightmare comedy, two or three times. The question this radio hour is, do we worry enough these days, you and I, about the risks built into nuclear weapons? Or maybe, do the politicians and the generals in Washington worry as much as we do about the doomsday machine, as Strangelove called it, with the design feature that the attack was beyond recall as soon as it was launched? We're drawing on history this hour, also on strategic logic, on our citizen heads, and on popular culture. Get us started. Daniel Imawar at Northwestern University in Chicago, historian of the greater United States and author of a wonderful book called How to Hide an Empire. What do we know, Daniel Imawar, of nuclear risks after all these years? We're in a really interesting position because on the one hand, we have to celebrate the fact that no nuclear weapon has been used in anger since 1945. That's a really long time. And other aspects of the sort of nuclear dread that used to suffuse the world, like atmospheric nuclear testing, which, you know, there were more than 500 above-ground nuclear tests that did great damage to the environment, those have stopped too. In fact, there has barely been one in my lifetime. We should celebrate it, but do we know why we've, we've been blessed? There's been a strong cultural revulsion and a correct one to nuclear war. But I want to note this, that partly because of our success, we're kind of in the position of, well, that we are with polio. Interesting. You know, there haven't been a lot of rampant diseases hitting the richest parts of the world before COVID. And as a result, we saw that people started getting lax and you started seeing people rejecting vaccines for their children. Understandably so. They hadn't seen the kinds of diseases that vaccines prevent. And I am very worried that we are in a similar sort of place with nuclear war. One way to think about that is, this is the first decade of our history where not a single head of a nuclear state can remember Hiroshima. Wow. There's a memory hole here, in short. We don't like them, but we don't fear them either, the way I did in my 20s, say. Chris, I think you and I are of remarkably different generations in that respect. And I can express this in terms of my relationship to my parents. My dad was born in 1945, so he was born the year of the first nuclear bomb, and he remembers all the duck and cover drills. He remembers being shown blast radii in his classroom, indicating that he would be destroyed if there were nuclear war. And he remembers going to a concert during the Cuban Missile Crisis and being genuinely unsure if he was going to survive to the end of the concert. I was born in 1980, which was the year of the last atmospheric test. The extent of my nuclear consciousness when I was growing up was that I spent a lot of time trying to master a game called Duke Nukem, a video game. That was it. I didn't, I didn't worry about that stuff. And I think that's not entirely true of my cohort, but I think it's true of a lot of people in, of my generation. I remember when the Russians got the bomb, and I, I can see myself shivering in my bed. Yeah. Nina, I'm wondering if you want to speak to this, because I know so much of your work is about 
how people learned to fear the bomb, dread the bomb, and spurn the bomb. Let me introduce Nina. Nina Tannenwald teaches nuclear strategy and geopolitics and international relations at Brown University. Her first book was The Nuclear Taboo. How worried are you, Nina? I'm very worried. I think this is the most serious nuclear crisis we've had in my professional lifetime. And and certainly since the early 1980s, the Abel Archer scare, and if you don't think that was a real nuclear crisis, we can go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this is the first time in my entire professional career of teaching about nuclear weapons that I have really worried that we could see a use of nuclear weapons. So I agree with Daniel. I think there has been what I would call nuclear forgetting. Hmm. The end of the Cold War came along and people thought, oh, we can put nuclear weapons on the back burner. Yes, they still exist, but they don't matter as much anymore. They're not central. Now that the Cold War is over, that kind of Cold War tension is gone. And so we don't have to think about them as much anymore. And I think the current generation, you're right, does not remember that period of duck and cover and real nuclear war scares. And now this is coming back. And the younger generation is not familiar with this. But I have to say, there are also members of the older generation who are familiar with this. And in my view, Mm. who are a little bit cavalier about the risks that we are facing right now in the Ukraine crisis. At the end of the Cold War, we sort of said deterrence must have worked. Something worked. We're in a sort of new Cold War now with Russia, or the old Cold War is back. What's changed in the confidence in deterrence? So what is new here is Russia is using the threat of nuclear weapons to shield a full-scale conventional invasion of Ukraine. So this is not the first time that a nuclear-armed state has invaded a non-nuclear state. The United States engaged in war in Vietnam and Russia engaged in war against Afghanistan, and the United States invaded Iraq. So it's not the first time that a nuclear-armed state has invaded a non-nuclear state. What's different here is Russia's explicit use of threats, overt threats, repeatedly, Mm -hmm. not just once or twice, but every few days, to shield their aggression in Ukraine. This is about making sure that NATO does not intervene on behalf of Ukraine with boots on the ground or maintaining a no-fly zone or something like that. So that's what's different. But it's bringing back to us the limits of nuclear deterrence. The benefits of nuclear deterrence are very limited. That is, nuclear deterrence does a few small things probably pretty well. That is, protect the homeland. So nuclear weapons deter others' use of nuclear weapons. But beyond that, What nuclear weapons get you is really pretty small. And I think what we're seeing very much in this war is the downsides of nuclear deterrence, that if there were no nuclear weapons in the world, if we had abolished nuclear weapons, NATO and the United States would be able to intervene on behalf of Ukraine with the West's overwhelming conventional superiority. But we are deterred from doing that because of Russia's nuclear weapons. Alex Wallerstein, I want to introduce you as a historian of science, first of all, but also a very provocative computer programmer. We'll get to your own interactive nuke map that millions of people have played with and been scared by, speaking for me. But I'd also like you to go right to the cultural question of how our heads think and deal with the nuclear risk today. How worried are you to begin with? 
I'm never not worried. So <laughs> there's that. But I think I'm less worried about nuclear use than I was with the North Korea crisis of a couple of years ago. That seemed like it had a pretty high chance of potentially having a miscommunication that could result in it. The fire and fury moment. The fire and fury moment. There's a lot of reasons that made me more concerned then than I am now. But of course, one is worried about these things and, and concerned about them. I'm not up at night worrying about it. So that's an improvement. Alex, I'd like you to speak to the strange love gap in our heads. 50 years ago, everybody knew strange love. Everybody could quote the great lines about bodily fluids and all sorts of other things. Stanley Kubrick's movie masterpiece with a peculiar comic, satirical, penetrating, scary vibe about the whole thing. Let's listen to a minute or so of Strange Love, just to remind us all. Afraid I don't understand something, Alexei. Is the Premier threatening to explode this if our planes carry out their attack? No, sir. It is not a thing a sane man would do. The doomsday machine is designed to trigger itself automatically. But surely you can disarm it somehow? No. It is designed to explode if any attempt is ever made to untrigger it automatically. Ah, it's an obvious comic trick, Mr. President. We're wasting valuable time. Look at the big boy. They're getting ready to clobber us. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? There were those of us who fought against it. But in the end, we could not keep up with the expense involved in the arms race, the space race, and the peace race. The weapon was out of control, as in some metaphorical sense it still is. It's remarkable in general when we think about what should we be afraid of? What are the possibilities of the future? We, we often do f think through fiction and we think through popular media. We end up with terms like strange lovian, which everybody sort of understands. Right. We know what a doomsday machine is. I do think it's interesting that we don't seem to have a lot of those contemporaneously, right? When I talk to younger students about how they think about nuclear weapons and what sorts of fictional products come to mind for them, it's often post-apocalyptic stuff. It's not the actual war. It's a thousand years after the war. That's often from video games. Most of my students have never seen Dr. Strangelove. Amusingly, if I show them it, the humor does not resonate. It does not cross generations very well for most of them. But I think it's a general question to ask, would we be better off if we had more of these things? And then also, what would they need to look like to actually work? And then also, are these things products of things that ideas that are already in the air or are they shaping the ideas obviously it's probably some kind of both right but you can't just sort of will strange love into existence but it wasn't just strange love there were all variety of movies in different tones on the beach with gregory peck and ava gardner and fred astaire of all people the last four people on earth but there was also seven days in may there were familiar scary deeply dreadful movies the movie Godzilla. I think Godzilla is a really good example for two reasons. First, a lot of people do not realize what the movie is about, and that has a lot to do with what Hollywood did to the movie. So there is a Japanese movie called Gojira. The special effects are incredible. It was made and inspired by a nuclear test that the United States did in the Bikini Lagoon that was just way out of control, far more powerful than those organizing the test thought it was going to be. And one of the effects of that is that it irradiated a Japanese tuna fishing boat and the inhabitants of that boat went back to Japan and caused absolute pandemonium. Japanese people started to think of themselves as thrice victimized by atomic bombs be just oh. because they recognized in these fishermen that 
they were also nuclear victims. And it happened again, and it could happen at any time, which is entirely the message of Gojira. There's a a monster who's awakened by H-bomb testing. He himself is irradiated. He destroys a fishing boat. Uh, Then he moves on to Japan, kind of recapitulating a lot of the events of 1945. When you watch Gojira, it is very clear what this movie's about. It's about nuclear testing. It's about the U.S. use of nuclear weapons. When you watch Godzilla, it is really easy to miss that point. But it's just a reminder of what a huge deal even nuclear testing was for the people who endured it and who lived with it. And that even, you know, things that we think of as just kind of popcorn fare, like Godzilla, are deeply influenced by nuclear dread that particularly people in Japan had every reason to feel. Coming up, how to map the blast and radiation effects of a nuclear bomb falling in range of your neighborhood. This is Open Source. Over the decades, it has been popular culture, much more than political organization, that kept nuclear issues on the front burner. Alex Willerstein has the remarkable story from the 1980s of the television movie The Day After. It turned Ronald Reagan, of all people, into the most effectively anti-nuclear president we ever had. So The Day After came out. In 1983, made for television film, immensely widely viewed, 100 million people. That's something like a third of the United States at the time, which is incredible. Was seen at the time as being potentially even a traumatic experience. I mean, there were sort of messages at the beginning and the end of the movie for hotlines you could call if you were, you know, overly depressed by this film, which is kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. And we know that Reagan wrote in his diary about having seen it and how depressed he was by it and things like that. So that's an unusual level of traceable impact among human beings and presidents and things like that. I will say in terms of bringing it back today, one of the difficulties in showing new audiences these older products is that our perception of them is partially linked to other cultural expectations. And I I mentioned earlier that my students don't find Strangelove funny. They don't laugh. I think of it as being the sort of 1960s educated liberal humor, right, which is very wry and witty, (laughs) but isn't the same kind of humor they have today, which can be quite different and and sometimes is absurdist in interesting ways, but not the ways that you would see Strangelove have. Similarly, if you show a student uh, something like from the 50s, they tend to just think it looks really cheesy and they have a hard time investing in it. I have a feeling that they would get really hung up on both the special effects of the day after, which look quite dated to modern eyes. Mm-hmm. I also think that they might get too hung up on the the context of the 1980s, which has many things that to you and I may not be that surprising, like telephone books, but to them is somewhat mysterious. <laughs> so when you say even show it again, Nobody watches broadcast TV anymore, right? It's a totally different media environment. You're talking about like streaming it again, probably, right? And even then, do you get people behind it? I have some hope, though, for if one were making new series. The HBO Chernobyl series was watched by more people than Game of Thrones. Now, it came out during a pretty bad Game of Thrones season. But nonetheless, like it's a pretty impressive amount of people who are willing to watch six episodes or whatever it was about a sort of dark and depressing Soviet nuclear reactor disaster. I I would not have expected that to be something you would have ever gotten people to pay money for. (laughs) You do sort of have to ride the zeitgeist to some degree, uh, which is why we're starting to see more climate fiction and climate movies and things like that. Though even those are pretty paltry compared to the size of the zeitgeist, at least in my estimation of it. Yeah, I would say the movie Don't Look Up last year was 
in a certain way, a nuclear movie. And the moral was kind of troubling. The moral was, forget about it. We just don't have the resources to talk about this kind of terminal threat. We don't have the political leadership. We don't have the personal courage. It's not in our news feed, this kind of disaster. Don't Look Up is really interesting because it's clearly a strange love remake, uh-huh. but it's about climate change, not nuclear war. It taps into a lot of the fears of strange love, which is that our leadership is corrupt and feckless and just unsuited to deal with any catastrophe. We don't talk about this a lot, but survivors and activists linked to them did an enormous amount of work in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s in turning Hiroshima from something that happened in one town to a kind of touchstone, an avatar for the unspeakable. And one of the most effective pieces of journalism, in fact, at the end of the 20th century, got voted as the single most important piece of U.S. journalism ever written, was John Hersey's Hiroshima, which is written by a a white guy from the United States, but he'd grown up in China, and he was unusually sympathetic to Asian perspectives, and he told the story of Hiroshima in 1946, not at all from the perspective of the people who dropped the bomb, but entirely from the perspective of six survivors, one of whom went on to become a major activist. And that first was an article in The New Yorker, but then that it became a best-selling book. It was, it was on the radio. I mean, that thing circulated like crazy because I think people really wanted to understand and were really shocked by understanding what nuclear war actually looked like. And that's something you don't really even get from Strangelove. Mm. One of the difficulties with climate stuff and with nuclear stuff is when you end the the film with nuclear holocaust or everybody is dead or whatever it is, that's a message, obviously, right? But it's a really different message than places where people have to pick up the pieces. Narratives where people have to pick up the pieces in some ways are even more disturbing. But you know, I think of climate fiction like uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. It's not a climate apocalypse. It's more like a slow, long risk problem. And it makes climate stuff all the more scarier than like the idea that the whole world goes up at once, right? Alex Wallerstein, you've made your own significant contribution to sort of scare culture with this nuke map. And I want you to tell people how to find it, but also explain what you had in mind you can dial in where you live, as I have done, and you can sort of dial in the megatonnage of the bomb and then see how it would affect you in your neighborhood. I'm wiped out entirely by a bomb that lands anywhere near Boston. Tell people how to find it and then what we're supposed to learn. So NukeMap is a tool for uh, visualizing the effects of nuclear weapons. You can find it by just Googling Nuke Map. It uses something very similar to Google Maps, so a familiar sort of interface that people know how to deal with. And you tell it where you want to set the bomb off and what type of bomb it is. And it'll show you different rings corresponding to different types of exposures and damages and things like that. And if you click some of the options, it'll show you a very rough back-of-the-envelope estimate of how many people might die immediately, and then it'll also give you a rough back-of-the-envelope estimate of the sort of uh, areas affected by radioactive fallout if the bomb is detonated close enough to the ground to generate a lot of that. You may be vaporized, you may be just knocked out of bed or whatever. Right. It's meant to help people sort of calibrate how these weapons work in their minds, because most people's idea of what a nuclear weapon is, is something like one bomb goes off and everything is destroyed. Uh, sometimes it's thought of as the whole world is destroyed. Sometimes it's thought of, you know, unlimited distance and destroyed. And and the bombs are extremely powerful and they do a lot of damage, but it's not quite like that. And so helping people, I think, think about them concretely is sort of the goal of this kind of 
project. It's not so much to necessarily scare them, though fear is not a uh, incorrect reaction <laughs> at times to to learning about nuclear weapons use and things like that. But it is about education and, and allowing people to educate themselves on these things. It doesn't lecture them. It sort of lets them plan out whatever they're interested in and, and find out about it. So there's a way sort of paradoxically in which reducing the scale of what people think about nuclear weapons actually amplifies how seriously they take them because you see it not as, well, if it goes off, it's the end of everything, thus it'll never go off. If you see it as, oh, this is a, something a state could imagine doing, this is something you could actually kind of try to grasp with your mind, it starts to feel more plausible in some ways. Vast numbers of people, which testifies to human curiosity, have tried your map, Alex. What do they feed back to you? So about 50 million people have used it since I created it at the moment. Oh, and the Lord. usage patterns sometimes correlate pretty well with anxiety about nuclear weapons and things like that. So the last few months have been very, very high usage patterns. Interesting. I get all sorts of different comments from people, and I also watch what people say about it on social media. It often occupies a little zone in which people describe as fun but scary, which is a pretty potent entertainment zone for human beings. That's scary movies. That's roller coasters. That's things like that. Uh, sometimes the response is, these are smaller than I thought. Sometimes it's, these are bigger than I thought. Hmm. Sometimes it's people saying, this is why we must get rid of these weapons. Sometimes it's saying, this is why we must have these weapons, which I think are all totally you know, valid types of responses. My goal is not to sort of tell people how to think about the bombs politically or strategically or anything like that, but to sort of understand what they're talking about when they talk about nuclear weapons. And I do think that it's one of the reasons that it's it's had essentially bipartisan support and interest. Nina Tannenwald, I take it you have been to the nuke map. I went in and, uh, of course, put my city in and my house in and, and tried it out with the <laughs> different criteria, a ground burst explosion or an air burst and then different size of different kilotonnages and so on. It does help to make very concrete for people what the consequences of a nuclear explosion would be, and especially because it calculates the estimated fatalities, number of people killed, number of people who are exposed to radiation, things like that. And so for people for whom nuclear war, who don't remember the days of duck and cover and the real sense of nuclear fear, this is a way to give them a more concrete sense of what the consequences of a nuclear explosion would be like. So it's a fantastic tool. I'm so glad Alex created it. It's very widely known in, in academia and policy circles, and it's, and it's really, really useful. Your nuke map memoir, please, Daniel. Yeah, I can tell you what happens when I nuke myself. So not that anyone is going to drop the largest bomb ever designed on Rogers Park, Chicago, like as the first thing that's going to happen. That's probably not number one that happens if the nukes start flying. But were that to happen, we are talking about an event that is not just in my neighborhood in Chicago, and in fact is not just in my city of Chicago, in fact is not limited to my state of Illinois, but that is blowing out windows and sending fallout to Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin. It is a dangerous event in four different states. That's if you hit my house. When you map responses to your nuke map, 50 million people, you say, what pattern shows up in the United States population, in the world population? The two major categories are whether you're nuking yourself, 
which I called experiential bombing, and whether you nuke other countries that you probably are not in and have never been in, which I call cathartic bombing. So people will bomb other nations to see what happens to them, sometimes out of anger, clearly, uh, based on what they post online about what they're doing. The United States is interesting in that our number one, we, we are by far the most self-bombing of any sort of nation out there. Americans want to experience it. We like to imagine ourselves as the victim of the bomb. But interestingly, the number two country that we bomb the most after bombing ourselves, I love to pose to people what it is, what they would guess it is. And the answers are often what you would expect. Is it Russia? Is it Canada, our enemies to the north? And the answer is it's Japan. They recreate Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Wow, which is a very interesting, complicated interplay of historical memory and simulation and things like this. Nina, speak to the point in your work that what contains the use of nuclear weapons is not strategic calculation, but a kind of cultural taboo. I do think there is a, a, a certainly a strategic element in deterrence that is the threat of mutual retaliation. So mad, mutual assured destruction, that's very powerful. And that works especially when it's about defense of, of national territory against the use of nuclear weapons by others. Where it becomes shakier is the context we're talking about now in Ukraine, where the scenario is that Russia might reach for a tactical nuclear weapon. And here, what I learned in research for my book on the nuclear taboo, and what I argue is that deterrence doesn't simply work through purely rational or strategic calculations. We would have to assume that Putin is completely rational. And the problem is that deterrence works until it doesn't. So for us to have confidence in deterrence, we can't simply depend on assumptions about rationality, but rather we have to build deterrence into norms and institutions and rules. That is, deterrence is stabilized by having some kind of shared understanding between leaders that using nuclear weapons would be unacceptable. And therefore, our, you know, our primary goal is to make sure that nuclear weapons are not used. And that has to be a mutual goal. Uh, and so it involved during the Cold War, it involved uh, the development of arms control institutions between the United States and the Soviet Union to stabilize that understanding. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, both leaders in both countries realized that the primary goal was to prevent the use of nuclear weapons, but that cannot be done unilaterally. Right? You need the other side. Yeah, I think there's two things to be worried about with the erosion of memory. So I entirely agree with Nina that deterrence does presumably a lot of work in making people not launch nuclear weapons at each other. But I think that that has to be reinforced by cultural norms. And I think that memory plays a big role. There are moments when we've come close to nuclear war. And in those moments, it seems like there's often, not, not always, but there's often a sort of soliloquy that the person in charge delivers where they say, you know, here's why we can't do this. Khrushchev writes this, you know, sort of agonized letter to Kennedy at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, like just changing the tone and just saying, look, come on, you've seen war, I've seen war, we know what it looks like, it's absolutely horrifying. 
we know not to do this, right? Uh, there used to be a kind of understanding. You don't elect crazy. And one reason you don't elect crazy is that crazy has the nuclear launch codes. And um, a really clear and well-known example of that is the 1964 um, U.S. presidential election. There was a popular conservative candidate named Barry Goldwater who was a norm breaker in a lot of ways. But one of them was that he talked blithely about using nuclear weapons, using them as defoliants in South Vietnam, firing them into the men's room of the Kremlin. And his political opponent at the time, Lyndon uh, Johnson, was able to capitalize on this famously, just running an ad showing a young girl sort of playing with a flower in the field and then suddenly cut to a mushroom cloud. And he didn't mention Goldwater's name. He just said, these are the stakes. And everyone gets it. Johnson wins in the largest popular vote tally since since we've been counting those things in the United States. And when Trump was running, part of the conversation was, my gosh, I'm a little concerned about what happens if Trump is, you know, has nuclear weapons. But that was not a huge part of the conversation. And I don't think it is a big part of the conversation now, despite the fact that Trump was totally brazen. He praised his own unpredictability with nuclear weapons. That rule that we've had, don't elect crazy, is, is eroded a little bit because of the lack of experiential knowledge of, of what crazy can do. Speak to the contrast here. I'm fascinated with the differences among actual presidents. Donald Trump had said at one point that he wanted to expand the nuclear arsenal 10 times. It was that, I think, that prompted his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, to, to call him a moron. But then Ronald Reagan became an ardent champion of complete disarmament, would have eliminated them all if he'd had his way. But I'm equally fascinated by the migration in Joe Biden's profile At the start of the Ukraine war, all the emphasis was on there will not be a no-fly zone, nor will there be American boots on the ground. We have come in a few weeks to his almost bragging that we helped the Ukrainians target Russian generals and the pride of the Russian fleet in the Black Sea. What do you make of that, that drift, that mission creep, even during this war? I'm a little worried about that. I think that we risk sleepwalking into a wider war. The Biden administration has basically done a good job in, you know, being very careful about keeping the United States and NATO out of the war, keeping the war framed as a war between Russia and Ukraine and not between Russia and NATO. I worry now, though, that as it's revealed that the Russian military is much weaker than everybody expected, that there now appears to be this window of opportunity where some people in the Pentagon, they think, well, you know, we could push on until total Ukrainian victory. And of course, the Ukrainians talk that way. I think this is incredibly risky. These leaks about uh, how the United States helped Ukraine target Russian generals and the Moskva ship. So these are leaks out of the Pentagon. These are guys in the Pentagon bragging about their contribution to the war effort. It's incredibly dangerous. The last thing we want here is to shift the framing of the war from a war between Russia and Ukraine to a war between Russia and NATO. That's where it gets really dangerous. I'm quite struck struck and alarmed by the attitude of some commentators who seem quite cavalier about the potential for expansion and escalation of the war and even use of nuclear weapons. And they're talking about, well, our goal now is to weaken Russia. Right. When these generals brag, it sounds like gloating. We should not... Mm be gloating about the war. The, the goal should be to end it as soon as possible, not to, you know, roll around in the in the glory of it all. Especially when the question of whether it's going to escalate 
is essentially a psychological question in the mind of Putin, right? It's about what he's going to perceive and want to do. The gloating seems like exactly the wrong. It feels like you're fueling every fire he might have about what the actual goal of NATO in the United States is and every conspiracy theory that he peddles about NATO wants to take over Moscow, which is probably not what NATO wants to do. But when you start gloating and start saying you want to weaken Russia, you can see how in that mindset that that's giving the wrong... That's not helping convince him to take any off-ramps. Coming up, still a key question. Is nuclear warfare, sooner or later, inevitable? This is Open Source. I hear more and more voices striking this note of caution, having come to it in the last week or 10 days. Graham Allison, for example, at Harvard, he wrote the first in-depth study of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He is more worried now than he was two months ago, about nuclear escalation in Ukraine. And he underlined again what he thought JFK had learned for all of us. Here's Graham Allison. As JFK said in his most important foreign policy speech just months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, I'm sure it was at that American University speech in June of 63, Kennedy speaking, above all, while defending our own vital interests Nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. But I don't hear people, even in the Biden administration and in the mainstream, saying, therefore, let's stop this war instead of feeding it or talking about weakening Russia. It's important to remember that U.S. and Ukrainian interests are not identical in this war that if I were Zelensky, I would be doing exactly what he's doing. But we are not Zelensky. And the United States has other obligations. We can't, we can't let Ukraine's own foreign policy goals or goals in the war determine U.S. goals. The Biden administration has an obligation to think about the wider consequences, and especially the obligation to avoid a nuclear war. Now, my view is that the, the war needs to end as soon as possible, and this kind of sleepwalking into a wider war is really dangerous. I know there are efforts at negotiation going on, but I really think that should be the priority. Interesting point. Also a migration from we're there to protect the people to we're there to maybe score a victory for Ukraine and protect their nation, their state. Those are two different ethical positions. So... You could say your goal is to to defend the state of Ukraine, the existing political state of Ukraine, in which case maybe you're you're willing to fight to the to the last Ukrainian. Maybe Ukraine would make that decision. That seems like a terrible decision, though, a terrible route to go down, given not only the deaths of of Ukrainian civilians, but all the, the damage and destruction of Ukraine. The alternative ethical position is that your goal is to preserve the citizens, the people of Ukraine, which might entail a compromise on borders and sovereignty. And that is, a, that is a different choice. But those are two competing ethical choices that I think are worth thinking about. We talk an awful lot about Putin's sanity or not, or his mental disposition. David Bromwich, Sterling Professor of English at Yale, wrote an interesting piece in The Nation a couple of weeks ago. But his whole point was we should be thinking more about the state of mind in our White House. He had been talking to a retired Foreign Service officer who was a room away in the White House in the Cuban Missile Crisis, in on the whole thing, when we know JFK 
barely held off a unanimous recommendation to bomb Cuba. But what Bromwich's friend remembered was the mood in that moment at the White House. Everybody knew that a nuclear war would be a catastrophe of unimaginable dimensions. But at a certain point, the momentum seemed irresistible. And his friend said, I thought to myself, okay, let's just do it. That state of mind, blank acceptance because they had already come so far, lasted, the man said, for about 20 minutes. And then somehow, he said, I came to my senses. But I've thought of that moment ever since. I was willing to live with the end of the world. It showed me what we are capable of, what I was capable of. So part of my argument is that we should be, in some ways, inoculating people so that they don't get into that situation where they just feel like, well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And reminding people, like, look, there are many times in which people thought it was inevitable and it wasn't inevitable. So, you know, let's let's all walk back a little bit from the edge. Yeah, that was Ronald Reagan's discovery. He wrote about it very well after the White House. His turn against nuclear weapons in office under pressure of a strong popular movement, was challenged by some of his oldest and best friends like George Will and William F. Buckley, who said, this is moral disarmament, you'll, you'll regret this. Reagan wrote about it this way. He said, some of my more radical conservative supporters protested that in negotiating with the Russians on an intermediate-range treaty, I was plotting to trade away our country's future security. I assured them we wouldn't sign any agreements that placed us at a disadvantage, but still... I got lots of flack from them, many of whom I was convinced thought we had to prepare for nuclear war because it was inevitable. I mean, Reagan's lesson, I think, for all of us was that, no, nuclear war is not inevitable. We have to act to prevent it. Well, Reagan's thought, though, was also that we could build a Star Wars. Well, at a moment, at a time in his first term, right. That we could build a, a missile defense that would, would shield us from nuclear war. So He got over that. Reagan was, uh, you know, he was a mis- mixed picture in his, in his first term. He was the one who, who really emphasized war fighting with nuclear weapons. Oh, we can use them on the battlefield. We could actually fight and win. And then he had this epiphany that, well... Strategic nuclear weapons might be lead to the end of the world. And besides, let's, we could build a missile defense and protect us from that. So, you know, there were um, some elements of fantasy and wishful thinking. Absolutely. One little thought problem I often give students, it's just sort of a something to talk about. So John von Neumann was, was one of the scientists on the Manhattan Project and one of the great scientists of the 20th century. And he's one of the inventors of the computer. And he's just one of these through Lappert, hyperbolically impressive minds that all the other geniuses thought was a genius, right? He's, he's like the ultimate genius in certain circles at that time. He was also a super nuclear hawk. And he, behind closed doors, was known as an advocate for preventative nuclear war. And his argument went basically like this. Do you think nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union is going to happen? Is is that the result? And if the answer is yes, if we think it's going to happen, why don't we do it now? Why don't we start it when we are at the advantage? And I pose this to the students and I always say, so what's what's the logical fallacy here? And they usually have a hard time finding it. It takes them remarkably while of thinking it over. And then some timid student in the back will say, maybe nuclear war wasn't inevitable. (laughs) And it's remarkable because so much of that argument is based on this one assumption that many people in the Cold War took 100% for granted. That, like, of course, it was probably going to happen someday. I've been wondering that as we've been talking about this. So we had 
part of this conversation where we were saying, you know, in the days of duck and cover, people knew what a nuclear threat was, and maybe that'd be helpful to have that kind of nuclear consciousness today. I also think of duck and cover as sort of unhelpful and traumatizing at the same time to school children. Perhaps that's wrong. But then, Alex, what I'm hearing from you also makes me think that part of what all these nuclear societies were collectively doing was building in expectation of inevitability that then sort of became or threatened to become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I have the sort of heterodox position that it you you cannot have the anti-nuclear movements of the 60s, 70s, and 80s without having the duck and cover. There isn't a lot of evidence that the duck and cover type stuff made people feel complacent or comfortable. Many people thought it was terrifying. <laughs> when, when people tell me anecdotally about duck and cover and their experiences, it's always like, at that moment, I realized that everything I was being taught was nonsense. And that's a very different take than like saying, like, I knew I could survive nuclear war and its inevitability. I'd ask you all, there's a thread in this whole hour that taboo and culture are more important shields against nuclear use, nuclear weapons, than are, you know, IR theory and geostrategic analysis. If that's true, that it's about our heads, what do we do to reinforce that, to rebuild a kind of strange Lovian awe and recoil from these weapons? I've uh, argued quite a bit about the value of having a nuclear taboo, which is a, a normative inhibition or a, or a non-use norm on nuclear weapons. And I think this helps to reinforce deterrence, right? You embed deterrence in a set of shared cultural and and normative and political understandings. When Putin makes a lot of nuclear threats uh, and says he's going to raise the alert level on, on Russia's nuclear weapons, this is all very damaging for these kinds of norms because it suggests that nuclear weapons are both Uh, useful and legitimate. In my view, what we need is to reaffirm the importance of the tradition of nuclear non-use. Nuclear weapons haven't been used for almost 77 years, and that's an incredibly important tradition, right? It's really the first time that a, a major weapon system hasn't been used in war since its origins. Wow. What I would like to see in the current situation is a lot more of what I would call taboo talk. So, And I think this follows very nicely from the discussion uh, we were just having about perceptions of inevitability. When people talk about, oh, Putin could use a nuke, whether will Putin use a nuke? There's there's a tone there that suggests we have no control over whether Putin would use a nuke. It's just all up to him. And all we can do is sit here and wait and see if he uses a nuke. Well, I think that's the wrong approach. And as Alex talked about the importance of always remembering that we have choices here, we have choices about how to wage this war. We have choices about how to talk about nuclear weapons. And so when journalists ask officials, do you think Putin would use a nuke? I think rather than saying, well, we don't know, the response should be, we haven't, the world has not seen a use of nuclear weapons since 1945. We never want to see this again. We hope nuclear weapons are never used again. It would be totally unacceptable. It would be inappropriate. It would be catastrophe for Russia, for Putin, and potentially the world. And that should be the kind of response that officials give when they're asked about this, rather than suggest, well, it's out of our hands. We have no control. It's inevitable. If Putin feels like doing it, he'll doing it, right? We need much more reinforcement of the cultural norms, the political norms that have 
gotten us this far without a use of nuclear weapons since 1945. Nina, I want to hear the follow-up question. Shouldn't we be talking also, though, about what our response would be if he did use a so-called small nuclear weapon? The U.S. response to a Russian use of a tactical nuclear weapon would be overwhelming conventional force. That is, the U.S. would not respond, would not retaliate with a nuclear weapon. And I think this is exactly right. If what you're trying to do is to respond to a violation, right, a failure of deterrence and and respond to a violation of the nuclear taboo in a way that helps to uphold the taboo. So this is very similar to what we would do if Russia used chemical weapons, for example. If Russia used chemical weapons in Ukraine, the United States and NATO would not respond in kind. We would not retaliate with chemical weapons. We would respond with some kind of overwhelming conventional force. This is also how I think the United States is thinking with regard to use of a tactical nuclear weapon, that that the U.S. would respond with some kind of overwhelming conventional response, which could target a, a wide range of things. For example, the Russian military naval base in Syria, pipelines, gas pipelines, things like that, military targets, Russian military bases uh, in many areas. So you know, there's lots of things that the United States can do with conventional weapons. I assume that is being conveyed privately as a deterrent step, right, to, to make it crystal clear to Putin that he should not miscalculate about this. Given that he miscalculated in starting the war in the first place, we want to make really sure that he doesn't miscalculate what the consequences would be of using a tactical nuclear weapon. Daniel Imawar, what's your idea of reinforcing the culture and the taboo? There's been another side of this, which is how we remember, how we publicly remember, not just how we talk and how officials talk, but how we all talk as a public and and what kind of public memory we have. You can compare Auschwitz and Hiroshima very nicely. They're both sites of something that happened that we've felt it really important to culturally single out and remember as within a a wider vortex of violence that was World War II, um, the fate of Europe's Jews and the fate of the atomic bomb victims at Hiroshima and Nagasaki have felt understandably Mm. really important and the kinds of things that we want to point to and say, never forget, never again. And we've had a lot of success with that. Hiroshima and Auschwitz have been parts of global memory, but they've been that way in, in different ways. And I think, you know, in the 60s, those two may have been sort of on some kind of equal plane. I think now you see that a lot less interest in Hiroshima as a thing that needs to be remembered to the point where there's a massive memory industry about Auschwitz and other concentration and death camps. And there are Holocaust museums Mm -hmm. and memorials in more than 100 countries, including places that, you know, you wouldn't obviously expect like Cuba, like Indonesia. And outside of Japan, there is just not the same kind of memory industry that, that draws our attention to and allows us to reflect on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think that we've We've let that slide to a degree, and I think part of that is has to do with the attenuation of experience and the attenuation of memory. We are filing that more and more in the bygone past, the polio kind of past, uh, and I think maybe we shouldn't. Alex, we need more people doing the nuke map. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That's one thing they could do. But I, I would say to this issue of also Hiroshima, in the United States— One of the things that I lament the most is how we teach about the atomic bombings in public schools. I attribute a lot of our policy drift on nuclear things and the sort of lack of strength to an anti-nuclear movement and a lack of discussion seriously about how these things work 
to the fact that after the 90s, we stopped talking about this with young people. That stopped being the priority. The young people are very politically engaged, but they're not with nuclear. They're engaged in a lot of things that they do get talked about, like social justice and racism and police brutality and climate and all these kinds of things. They're very involved in that stuff. Nuclear is not part of it. And I cannot tell you how many students I get or people I run into who, who say, oh, I never heard about any of this stuff. And I used to think, oh, my God, you should have heard about a little of this stuff at this point. I mean, everybody's got more to learn, but still. Well, I, but I think it's partly because the issues have changed since the 1970s and 1980s. The climate change didn't exist then. On my university campus, which is quite liberal, the students care about saving the global south and racism and police brutality and now climate change. And on that list, uh, nuclear weapons have been way, way low, low down in the priority. Brown didn't even teach any classes. My university didn't even teach any courses on nuclear weapons for uh, decades, several decades. Right. And that's and that's sort of my again, my, my point is not that they are not active. They're super active. The question is, how do you make it more salient? How do you make it more active? And it is. I think these crises, if there's any silver lining to them, is that they do make some of these things more salient. There is some evidence that my colleagues who've done public opinion surveys and stuff have found that these crises make people think more about nuclear weapons and they make it so that information they learn about nuclear weapons during the crisis is retained longer, which is not surprising, but that's kind of interesting and means they could be opportunities for thinking about, assuming we don't have nuclear war, what we'd like people to take away as messages from these things. And on your way to making a movie, you can also make a podcast talking with people like you about it and somehow feeling better. We ought to keep talking. I can't thank you, three of you, enough. Nina Tannenwald at Brown, Alex Wallerstein at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, and Daniel Imoar at Northwestern. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having us on. Daniel Imawar wrote the book, How to Hide an Empire, a history of the greater United States. Nina Tannenwald wrote the book, Nuclear Taboo. You can find Alex Wellerstein's renowned Nuke Maps site at nuclearsecrecy.com slash nukemap. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute. Read more from Quincy Fellows at their online magazine, ResponsibleStateCraft.org, where Joe Serencioni says, let's curb loose talk of using lower-yield nuclear weapons. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of some of the smartest podcasts out there. This week, check out Soonish, a show about technology, culture, and the future from journalist Wade Rausch. This spring, Wade stumbled on a test of strength in Albuquerque between the city's historical commission and a rising generation of New Mexico artists. Wade puzzles it out at soonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.